Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to continue with our ongoing series on looking at global warming, climate change, and what in the world have we done to our beautiful Earth. And to join me today in discussing this and taking another step, yet another step in this direction of our understanding and truly deeply soberly cognizing what it is we have done and what situation we currently find ourselves in. And then next, of course, what can we do about it? How can we, can we? reverse the current situation, which is a situation that has no historical uh, antecedent, no precedent. So we're on new ground, and we do query, what is this all about? What is this all about? It's truly an existential moment that we're all facing. And one of the people who has articulated that moment better than almost anyone I have come across to date is journalist and author Dar Jamal. We'll be speaking about his book, The End of Ice. Dar has a prolific background in journalism. He spent time in Iraq. He's covered the Iraq War. He has been a journalist across the world for decades and well known for it. Well, we're all really very glad that he has decided to embark upon a serious, serious study of the environment out of his own love of the earth and of hiking and having fun and joy in the mountains. And uh, as a result of that and seeing, bearing witness to the changes before his very eyes, he's making a serious turn toward focusing on the planet, on glacial melt, on ice melt, and what that means for everyone on the planet, and not only that, but all sentient life. So, Dar Jamal, a pleasure to have you on A Better World. Thanks for your writing, thanks for your book, and thanks for your commitment to uh, changing things around through breeding greater awareness for us all. Pleasure to have you. Thanks, Mitchell. Great to be with you. So, if you would, I'd like to really open this up. Uh, My audience here is quite well aware of much of the hazards that we are walking through, the craggy shoals and navigating them as best we can because we do talk about this subject of climate change. And I like the way you put it, climate disruption. I feel that's uh, much more accurate. Um, I actually go to the point of calling it climate catastrophe, quite honestly. But I still believe that we have a way to come back, and we can really actually do so. But before we go into that, maybe we'll go into that more toward the end, would you please lay out for the audience what your direct personal experience is in the mountains, what you saw, what you've documented, what you've witnessed, and your experience by so doing uh, brought to you? Well, I, first, I really appreciate that you are really cognizant of the terminology that we use for this crisis because calling it climate change or even global warming 
absolutely downplayed. Mm-hmm. The reality is we are in a crisis. We are in a catastrophe. We, we are in the sixth mass extinction. We, we are headed for yes. uh, extremely intense times. And, and I, I chose to use the word disruption because I'm just trying to be as scientifically precise as I can, knowing that since the brunt of my audience is U.S.-based and how well the fossil fuel denial movement is functioning here, yes. I, you know, as a journalist, just try to be absolutely precise. So that's where that comes sure, from. But sure, sure. I appreciate I, that. I, I took the tact of the book that I did because knowing that, uh, well, my, it's my core belief that the fundamental cause, the root cause of climate disruption is our disconnect from the planet, that if more of us, or the majority of us even, were living uh, the way we used to, even this country when it started being largely an agrarian country, if people were that much more tied into the land and the seasons, uh, I, I think that we would have been aware of these impacts much sooner and much more alarmed by them. And as it is now with most people living in big cities, not getting out into nature much, if at all, uh, these huge mm-hmm. events are happening and so many people can still uh, really choose to ignore them, which is a, a pretty amazing modern phenomenon that I think wouldn't mm. even have been possible 100 years ago. And then, of course, factor in technology and iPhones and where people's heads are at, and, and there you have the disconnect. And so yeah. the purpose of the book was essentially to go to some of these frontline places where the the evidence is happening the most dramatically and often the the, the, the fastest and really try to give people a visceral response of what it was like. And so in order to do that, I went to a lot of places I already had a long-term relationship with, like the Great Barrier Reef where I had dove 20 years ago, like Denali where I, I climbed on uh, for the better part of 10 years when I lived in Alaska from the mid-'90s, and go back mm. to these places and then really uh, experience what it's like to see this dramatic, abrupt change happening and and instead of being hyper-focused on just the science, but really try to bring in a personal human element to it, as well as an homage to nature and really try to celebrate the awe and the grandeur and the amazingness of this planet where we live. Well, I have to say, sort of on a <clears throat> a book review slash critique commentary for a moment, Dar, you really hit the bullseye, as I told you uh, prior to our interview uh, in a call, that uh, I was truly moved by the oftentimes poetic uh, rendering of your experience uh, on Denali and the wind and the ice and the beauty of the blue ice and even the fierceness of the gusts of gusts that's way too gentle what you were experiencing having to go into like these crevices and these caves to just be safe for a moment and so interestingly and if i may say beautifully you described that you were at utter and complete inner peace while the outside world was raging all around you so that contrast and that seeming paradox really hit me and I felt like you did truly an exquisite job and for a read folks I would definitely say this book is well worth it not to mention the the education you'll get 
<clears throat> from reading it about you know what's really going on on the ground, uh, but also just to be taken into the magnificence of nature through your eyes, Dar. So I want to thank you for that in itself, let alone what I've learned from you know the true reality of what's happening with the melting. So homage to you I, as I well. Really- I really appreciate that, yeah, because that was absolutely my goal, and it means a lot to to hear that because I, you know, I, I really wanted to bring that home to people, not just because I think, you know, most people like, you know, it sounds like your audience is is very tuned into this topic, and you know, yes. I think they like myself. Once you get the basic core data, it's it's yes, we need to pay attention and watch as things keep changing and unraveling. But uh, it, it certainly need to be aware of that. But you hit a point of saturation, and it's it's extremely hard to keep taking it in. And I'm at that point myself. And what we really need, uh, I don't know if it's instead of that, but certainly alongside that is a human element, and uh, to just be reminded of of when is the last time we went back outside and really spent deep time with nature, even if it's just walking out in a park and really getting quiet and really spending some time in the trees. Uh, something as simple as that is going to really automatically change our, our worldview. And we've gotten so disconnected from it as a society and, and Western industrialized culture. And so I think that has to be a core component of this conversation now when we, whenever we're talking about what's happening to the planet, because uh, it's, it's not this separate thing. It's, you know, in this separation in our minds, to and from it that's been perpetuated by this Western culture is, is extremely, extremely harmful. And that's why another reason in the book and several different places, I bring in indigenous voices to remind us of what we need to remember. Beautiful. Yes, exactly. I, I definitely made note of that. You know, you're reminding me of uh, a group that I was part of in a project I was part of back in the, uh, mid-90s called the Wilderness Awareness Group by a young man named John Young, who had been a student of the tracker Tom Brown. In fact, probably the very first tracker. And Tom Brown was a student of a Native American who he met in the woods of all places in New Jersey. It's a fairly well-known story. He was in the Pine Barrens, as I recall the story, and happed upon this native indigenous being who was living there. And uh, I don't remember the whole context, but Tom became his immediate student and learned tracking of just the way, you know, native peoples have known about for eons. And uh, then... Tom in turn trained John, and John in turn started this whole school that brought families into the wilderness, into nature, together. So the mother and the father and the kids all got a chance to experience, Dar, the beauty of plants and of trees and flowers and the brush and to track animals through the brush and to touch the dirt and walk barefoot. And we had Jake Swamp of the Turtle Clan of the Mohawk Nation as on our 
faculty, so to speak. And he would wind out amazing stories and bring everybody in around the campfire. And we recreated um, a very personalized touch of what it was like to be in nature as a group. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful time in my life, for sure. But it's speaking of what you're saying, which is that personal thing. There are only so many statistics we can hear, true as they may be, but that left-brained sort of um, linear thought process, important as it is, can also just not touch the heart in a way that we need the heart touched to really generate the kind of action we need at this point. So that's exactly right. And it's, it's really interesting to me that you, you bring that up at this moment because there is a bit, I don't know if I'd call it a debate, but certainly a swirling around of different ideas of what, where, where people should get their motivation from to act uh, given where we are in this crisis. And, you know, there's one school of thought is, well, it's time to have fear and panic. You know, people need to panic because, you know, yes. if they really feel this fear, that's going, to, what's, that's going to motivate them. And I came from that school for a long time because I write these monthly mm-hmm. climate dispatches, and they're brutal to read. They're, they're, they're basically a club of scientific information that by the time you finish reading one, you kind of feel like, well, what's the point, you know? And and yes. uh, I've been doing that for years, trying to kind of use them to hammer people into action. And and I don't really know how effective that's really been. And uh, and then there's the other school of thought of well, you know, people just need to uh, uh, you know fall really care and really love the the planet, and that's where that's going to come from, and, and the motivation, and that's really more where I am now, you know, because if if something that we really love, whether it's a person or a thing or or the planet, if that's, if that's in jeopardy and that's suffering, then we're going to try to take care of it. You know, we're going to do what we can to take care and help this person place or thing that we really love and care about. And I think, you know, what better motivation is there from love? And then when times get really hard, that's going to be the most sustainable motivation and that's going to be the place that no matter what happens and no matter how bad things look and i i get into this book i mean things look extremely bleak i mean at one point i even do share that it really looks as though to me given my experience and the whole journey of this book two and a half years going to all these places around the world with all these experts it really is hard for me to envision humans making it through uh this situation that we've now created for ourselves so no matter but no matter how bleak that gets, if we're completely in love with this planet and we feel this deep moral obligation uh, that we're, I, I was reminded of in the book, and I bring it into the book that comes from indigenous philosophy that we're born onto this planet with obligations, obligations to serve and take care of the planet and obligations to uh, take the right actions to take care of the, the future generations. And if my motivation is coming from a deep moral obligation for those two things, then no matter what happens and how bleak things might appear, I am gonna I am gonna be in this to the end, and I am gonna do everything that I can to try to work for the betterment of those things. So well put. I I, I feel like we walk in the same shoes. I really do. I 
I very often turn many conversations that dominate our news cycle these days are about rights, health care as a right, and civil rights as rights, and all of this. And one can understand that storyline. Uh, yes, of course. But honestly, mm-hmm. it doesn't move me. It really doesn't deeply move me. But what does move me, and this is personal, this is just me, is the word you used, which I personally use all the time, and that's obligation. And I think it was from you that I learned the, or somewhere else, but it was reinforced by you in the book, uh, that there was the indigenous understanding uh, that it is a uh, kind of a, a principle of our moral obligation. I learned it originally, honestly, in Jerusalem by studying the religion of my birth, even though I'm not a card-carrying Jewish person. I am Jewish, and I learned that fundamentally in the Torah, they don't talk about rights at all, but they do talk about human obligations to each other, to community, to all sentient life. I mean, you would think that they were Buddhist, for crying out loud, and as well as to the planet. And so I have been espousing that perspective since I learned that uh, small shift. It's not big. Rights will be realized when obligations are fulfilled. Not a problem. But the orientation and our relationship to, in a sense, who we are and to others changes rather radically. So your point is well made. I appreciate it. If you would, uh, no, please react to that. But I'd also like, if you would, to kind of flesh out for our audience what your experience was that you detail in the book um, of going back to these places where you had hiked many years before, and here you are going back yet again some years past, and seeing the, the melt and what that was like for you personally and what you learned from speaking to the elders, both Native as well as the, some of the, the park, the park um, you know, rangers and scientists that you've encountered there. That's right. And, and so I'll really, the, the, the place, to, I, I chose the topic for the title of the book, The End of Ice, really, because I, I love the mountains. That's my favorite place to go. Uh, out and be and really tap into the earth and, and listen and 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 yes. my tanks get refueled there and so uh, I am a mountaineer and uh, used to be a whole lot more active in it when I lived in Alaska and so I spent a lot of time up on Denali as a, a guide then a, a ranger and then as a rescue volunteer with the Park Service and uh, so I went back up there in 2016 that summer for the book uh, on a patrol with the Park Service doing rescues, and the I was shocked at what I saw. It had been 13 years, and that's you know in in, in in a geologic time frame, which is usually how we look at these kind of climatic changes. That is nothing. It's hardly an eye blink. And uh, mm-hmm. but just in those 13 years, I saw dramatic changes. The 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 Kahiltma Glacier, which is the main glacier that you are traveling on when you go up the standard route on Denali, uh, it had lost tens of feet of thickness. And that might not sound 
so much, but then when you consider it's a 40-mile-long glacier, as wide as uh, a mile wide in places, and is one of the biggest glaciers in that entire mountain range, uh, and you talk about that volume of ice that, that has been lost in that short of a time, it's, it's staggering, actually. Uh, other things like mosquitoes at base camp, you know, base camp being 7,200 feet on a glacier in the remote Alaska range at mosquitoes. This is uh, very odd. I, I think I hope people understand how, how much of an anomaly yes. that is. And then, and then things sure. like up on the upper mountain, and this is a mountain that's 250 miles from the Arctic Circle. It's a little over 20,000 feet high. I mean, it is Arctic weather up there. And, I mean, it's, it's, as I detail in the book, it's not uncommon to be in an ambient temperature in the upper mountain where it's minus 20, minus 30, minus 40 degrees during the summer, and then you throw in a wind chill and you can double that easily. And, but even with that, things were warming so fast that even in the upper mountain, we had to bring rock helmets with us because of rock fall. And, you know, that gives you an idea, you know, it's how, how dramatic mm. does the change have to be where you're that high in that climate and you're having to worry about rock fall. So these kinds of things that were dramatically apparent, huge areas, big mountainsides that previously had been covered in uh, thick glacier were now bare rock. Uh, so dramatic change is evident. And then when I spoke with a lot of my ranger friends up there, many of them who were still there from when I used to work up there, and they were all saying the same thing. Like, look, we're watching this change so fastly. It's, it's our jaws are hitting the ground often. Uh, the last anecdotal uh, piece of information I'll share is that on Denali, the camps are, you call them just whatever their elevation is. So base camp is 7,200. And then there's 7,800, uh, 9,700, 11,2, 14,2, 17,2. And the, lo- the, the lower camp, basically all of them below 14,2, where the melting is the most dramatic, they had lost so much ice that those elevation numbers are no longer accurate for the camps. And so one of my friends there, a ranger named Tucker Chenoweth, said, look, yeah, we're, I don't know, we're, you know, realistically, if we want to be accurate, we're going to have to rename the camps because that's how much melting is happening up here. So dramatic. And so to, to go back there and really experience that and feel it, it, it was, it was hard, you know, and I, I went to another, I went to a lot of places around Alaska that summer and I went to another one where we used to have to hike over a glacier that was several hundred feet thick to get to a, a mountain that we used to climb. And I went back there to see it, and the entire glacier was gone, literally gone. And when I first – I hiked over a little hill and, and prepared to kind of approach the glacier, and then when I saw that it was gone, it just it felt like someone punched me in the stomach, you know, and – because this is a place mm-hmm. that I really, really love. I moved up there specifically just to be in the mountains and on the glaciers and to basically watch it not just change, but in a lot of places literally go away before my eyes. It, 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 and I, I brought this experience into the book where it really felt like watching a friend either suffering or dying. And, and mm. you know, you can look at Mac, take the macro perspective out and look at the entire planet and, you could apply that experience in so many other places. The Great Barrier Reef, huge swaths of the Amazon rainforest now, glaciers mm-hmm. in the lower 48 states. I mean, go across the table. 
and in many cases it, it does appear as though we're we're it's like being on a planet that's in uh, a hospice type of situation. Mm-hmm. Mm. What a way of putting it. Yeah. 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 On that note, was there any place that you went, Dar, where the melt was uh, slower or maybe hardly happening at all? And if so, where and why? Well, the only place that it's slower, on, like, for example, where I just mentioned, would be on the upper ramparts of Denali. Although even up there, as I said, there's some dramatic shifts, but it's not mm-hmm. happening quite as quickly as it is lower down. And that's simply because it's so high and the latitude is so far north that it, it is a bit slower. But really, everywhere else around Alaska and all of the Arctic, for that matter, and this has been known in science now for decades, and I'm sure you're aware of it, that uh, the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet due to yes. our, uh, 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 the latitude situation. And so you've got the, the permafrost is thawing out dramatically quickly now, and I have another chapter where I go into that interviewing one of the leading scientists studying that out of the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and then the impact of that of instead of sequestering and holding uh, the organic material in it uh, as it has for millennia, as it thaws out, it's now becoming, it's on track to becoming a source of CO2 release into the atmosphere and uh, lesser um, amount of methane. And then, of course, the Arctic sea ice that it's rapidly diminishing and it's on track. We're going to start having periods of ice-free Arctic uh, ocean in the summer sooner rather than later. Uh, I I don't want to make a prediction, but uh, right now, if you look at the observational evidence trend, it it appears as though that could happen as as soon as within the next five years. And once that happens, uh, people who've been studying the climate and what that means for the global climate patterns and rainfall patterns and weather patterns is total, utter chaos, like total disruption. That's when uh, you know, our ability to continue with the agriculture system that we have, feeding the 7.6 billion people on the planet, all of that comes into very dire jeopardy. So there's there's dramatic, dramatic warming happening there. And then other places where I didn't get to go to the Antarctic, but right around the time when my book was released, the middle of January, a, a huge study came out led by Dr. Eric Rigno out of UC Irvine, and he's also a NASA-affiliated scientist. And that study mm-hmm. of the Antarctic showed a six-fold increase in melting just since the 1970s. Uh, we're also seeing dramatic acceleration across Greenland and, and many of the other places where literally these giant areas of ice on the planet are, are starting to go away before our very eyes. So... This is, of course, devastating to hear and to bear witness to, needless to say. Uh, One of the most immediate fallouts of this aspect of the situation of climate disruption, and, uh, you know, I, I personally resort to the use of humor because... That's just my adaptation to pain. And I'll, I'm about to quote Robin Williams, who said, it's not global warming, it's global grilling. <laughs> and, you know, it's at mm-hmm. least that, right? It's at least that. One of the 
first consequences of uh, glacial and ice melt, of course, is sea level rise. So based on what you observed uh, through your, your journey and learning specifically, focusing on, on melt, uh, what looks like the prediction for the coastal cities uh, across the world regarding uh, increased um, uh, water levels. I mean, I know that uh, Miami is already building uh, streets that are at a higher elevation as their adaptation to the crisis because it's been a problem down there for uh, quite a while. That's not new to them. And they've now taken on the expense of, in a sense, elevating their city. But I don't think that's going to be happening in New York, where I live. I'm wondering, what, what data have you come across that uh, links the, uh, the melting with the timing of the uh, sea level rise for the coastal cities? Right. And it, it's Miami Beach where that's the, the raising of some of the streets has occurred. And it's really a bit of a, I mean, it's a three feet raise in, in some of the streets, if not all. So it's, it's almost laughable when you take it into the proper context of what's really already baked into the system with sea level rise and the acceleration yeah. of this. And so it's hard uh, to tell I, them that, but yes, <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's, you know, it's yeah. a political decision, not obviously based on, um, what the real science is showing us right now. And so, but I, when I was down there, I, I think one of the most fascinating interviews I had was with Dr. Harold Wamless with University of Miami, Coral Gables. And he's a geologist and a sea level rise expert and is, is one of the leading experts on the topic. And he, he, you know, he's an older fellow, he's tenured. And while many scientists are much more reserved and, cautious about not sounding alarmist and things like this. He just doesn't give a damn. I mean, he said, look, I'm going to tell the truth. And I know a lot of people are afraid to do that, but I have to, I'm going to just talk about the way, you know, what I see scientifically happening. And he said, look, we, the IPCC is grossly underestimating their projections. And I know specifically why one, it's heavily politicized. There's, it's not a pure scientific process. There is political pressure to bear on the future projections, it's consensus science. There's several reasons why this is not accurate. Uh, and he went on in great detail, which I line out in the book, uh, a lot of specifics around how that operates. He says what we really need to be looking at is the fact that their projections hardly even account for the melting in Antarctica and Greenland, which happen to be the two biggest ice sources uh, contributing yeah. to sea level rise on the planet. Uh, and so he went on to say, look, James Hansen, formerly NASA, uh, he released a study that showed we could see 10 feet of sea level rise by 2050, so barely 30 years from now. And he said we could see 20 feet the way the rates of acceleration are happening and runaway feedback loops and this nonlinear yes. change that we're now already seeing, we could see 20 feet by, by 2100. And uh, I think the most startling thing that he shared with me was, was this, that when, when the earth came out of the last ice age and, and everything started to melt and CO2 started uh, being re uh, released back out of uh, soils and the earth back into the atmosphere, we, mm -hmm. we had a 
parts per million increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that corresponded with a hundred feet of sea level rise. And, and he said, look, oh. we, we have added, you know, look at where we're at now in comparison to where we are when the industrial revolution began. So when the industrial revolution began, there were 280 ppm CO2 in the atmosphere. We're now at 414. When I was speaking with him the other year, it was uh, 410. And so just leaving it there, because that's uh, when, where it was when he and I had the conversation. So I, I looked at him and I said, that's 130 parts per million that we've added to the atmosphere. So that means we have 130 feet of sea level rise baked into the system. He just nodded yes. So that means every major coastal city on the planet is going to be flooded, and it's going to have to be moved or, or, or relocated entirely. But either way, it's going to have to be abandoned to the sea. You cannot mitigate or even adapt a major city to that much water. You just can't. And so think about that. How many hundreds of millions of people around the world are going to have to be relocated just from sea level rise alone? And even if it didn't happen in 2050 and 2100, another interesting conversation I had with a, a NASA emeritus, uh, retired Antarctic scientist, Bob Benchandler, who lives up here uh, nearby me on, in the Pacific Northwest, he said, look, another thing that people forget is we keep hearing 2100 as though that's when climate disruption stops. All, the, all these projections up to 2100 is all that's hardly ever reported. He said, look at what happens to sea level rise when you look at 2200 or 2300. So if we're going to talk about future generations and trying to prepare them for the adaptation that's going to have to happen, you know, we're, that's when we start looking at, uh, uh, you know, if we're talking at 2150, 2200, et cetera, those projections, even conservatively, are, are going well up over, you know, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, depending on which, which specific projection you look at. So that's another thing that, that I just want to remind people, too, that, and I'm yes. included in sometimes being remiss in, in talking about, look, it do, this doesn't just end at 2100 just because you and I aren't going to be here. Uh, children being born today, uh, they're sure. going to be here in 2100 and probably a little bit after. Sure, sure. Absolutely. No, it's a very good point. And, you know, since there is a theme also in your book of the indigenous wisdom, the thought about looking downstream, no pun intended, seven generations is something that is uh, a kind of a, a consciousness that is very slowly, unfortunately, but is beginning to get embedded in our thinking, certainly in some of us, uh, that we really need to look forward that far and our actions today and how they might be precipitating certain kinds of outcomes downstream. So, yeah. It's chilling. It's chilling to hear this, Dar. Let's let everybody know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are also on A Better World TV every Monday evening in New York City at 7 p.m. And you're welcome to watch on TV or online at www.abetterworld.tv. Just in the upper right-hand corner, it says click to watch and click through at a couple minutes to 7 every Monday and tune in to 
what we're covering there on TV as well. Many of the same subjects, different people usually. And join if you don't already uh, for our newsletter, our free weekly newsletter at abetterworld.tv and become part of a better world's uh, community and family. So we're speaking today with the author of The End of Ice, Dar Jamal, who has a an award-winning uh, journalist who has traveled the world covering war and now most recently covering the subject of ice melt and glacial melt uh, through his love of hiking. Some of the highest peaks in the world has come back with some very, very saddening, heartbreaking news. And while it might not be new, when you hear it from his mouth and his words, I'll just tell you, it sinks in. It sinks in for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about, because it's very personalized. It's not just a bunch of graphs on a screen. It's the actual experience of watching and feeling and seeing our earth melt, our ice and glaciers melt. And I'll tell you, Dar, there's such an experience in reading your book of the beauty of this ice. I've been up at Lake Inari in Finland by the Arctic Circle uh, back in the early 90s. And while I wasn't quite hiking mountains like you were, I was there and we were walking across the ice, uh, the lake, I'm sorry. And it was fascinating. We were going to meet a Sami shaman there uh, who had set up a teepee on the ice. It was a fascinating experience. But we felt the slush happening as we were walking there. And it was getting a little scary because we were very packed up with uh, clothes, of course, because it's freezing cold. This was in uh, January or February of around 93 or 94. And... Um, Yet the ice we felt, we had to be careful where we stepped. There was a, a book written about our experience, actually, um, especially afterwards when we were uh, riding home on skidoos. It was getting very, very dicey. The ice was getting very dicey. So uh, in very, very, very um, micro way, I experienced a little bit of what it is you dealt with on a much uh, larger scale. I'd like to ask you, since you've covered the Iraq War and the Middle East a lot in terms of war and all of that, you know, I've heard it said many times, at least in the circles that I hang out in, that a large part of what caused the issues in Syria that have become obviously armed conflict and what they refer to as civil war actually had its rise, its inception, from drought among the farming communities that didn't have enough water to, draw, to grow the food for both their own markets, uh, local markets, and even their family. And the upset at the climatic conditions then is what led to the petitioning of the government for some kind of help in restoring some form of water, irrigation, what have you, in those uh, farming areas. And when that wasn't being fulfilled, that's what led to a lot of uh, what became the outcropping of violence. 
Any comments That's or thoughts about that? Is it? That's accurate. And and that you can you can take what you just said and apply different iterations of it in the other countries where the Arab Spring sparked, uh, starting in Algeria, or I'm sorry, in Tunisia, when Tunisia, it was the vegetable right. vendor who, who self-immolated uh, in his yes. little vegetable stand. And that, a, a lot of people point to that as the the uh, the catalyst of the entire Arab Spring, that the catalytic sure. event. And again, that is because of food prices, which is because of drought, which is because of climate disruption. Look at Egypt. You know, the major, uh, It was either half or a little bit more than half of the entire population of Cairo was struggling to afford three meals a day. And so it completely politically destabilized the country, and look at what happened. And so this spread across the entire Middle East, and while climate disruption wasn't the only factor, it was certainly a major factor. And this is, this yes. is why there's a lot of other studies that have come out even since that time showing that, you know, even, even uh, with Western civilization that are saying, look, Western civili- civilization is going to collapse. It's not if, it's when. NASA even released a study of, about this five years ago. And it's because as these global supply chains start to collapse as, as food crops are disrupted, as droughts persist, as, as countries' uh, grain reserves are used up, and we start seeing these giant spikes in prices, to think there's not going to be that kind of destabilization in the chaos that comes with it, even in the West, is, is well, it's, you don't really, if, if people don't understand that, it's, it's, look, we're not exceptional to this. We're not outside of those kinds of impacts, even though right now, uh, the majority of the people in the U.S. do have enough food and, and are making uh, ends meet. But, but that's a very, very tenuous situation, and I fully expect that to change sooner rather than later. Very important point, very important point. I make it to people, and they don't quite, no pun intended, digest it. Uh, there is a kind of a, a lethargy in thinking I have found, Dar, that I find very very disturbing. I don't know why people feel so insulated from the reality of life and of nature and biology, but they do. And it's, uh, it's disheartening, to say the least. Um, thank you for all that you're sharing here. I'd love to turn a corner here with you and take a look at the subject of solutions. Um, I, I'm involved, among other types of projects and educational contexts with something called the Pachamama Alliance. And as I'm sure you know, the Pachamama word is the Quechua word from the Amazon and the Andes for uh, Gaia. And as the uh, living mother and feminine principle, even more so, of our of our lives, of creation principle, in fact. And the Pachamama Alliance is deeply involved in bringing forward awareness and education about uh, environmental justice and awareness and action, as well as social justice and spiritual meaning is the way we put it. And uh, it's a beautiful organization, and they've hooked up recently with the work of Paul Hawken in his most recent book, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan to reverse global warming ever proposed, something of that sort in the subtitle. And uh, it's a very bold, or as we say these days, audacious kind of uh, um, statement that 
is also backed by a tremendous amount of science. And he's basically collated the work of uh, some 200 scientists, environmental scientists, uh, climate activists, climatologists from around the world, and they came up with 80 to 100 solutions in rank order about what it is that's causing the greatest carbon footprint, um, the great, greatest methane release, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and what what measures need to be taken to reverse it. Some of it's technological, some of it's agricultural, some of it's educational. It's it's a fascinating, fascinating tome that has, I feel, has tremendous merit. Um, and some of the work that I'm doing in this space through A Better World is using it as the guide. In fact, I've even proposed same to uh, uh, Robert Hockett, who is one of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's advisors on the Green New Deal, and I'm seeking to provide some uh, information to him and then to her and then therefore hopefully to more of Congress about a real roadmap to making change. We'll see what happens. Um, Certainly I'm working at it and so are many, many, many others. Uh, But I wanted to ask you, I'm just outlining a couple of you know, options that are there that I personally think are very, very strong ones. But I'm wondering, what do you think when it comes to reversing and changing this outrageous glacial melt that we see? I mean, it, you know, it's sort of like, what do they say? It's like pushing the river. You can't do it. You can't really do it. But then again, we have to do something. And there's science that shows that with a reduced parts per million and billion in the atmosphere, there are some changes that can take place. Granted, we're far past so many tipping points. Understood. But reality is reality. And we're not going to simply sit back and just watch it happen. So your thoughts. Love to hear what you have to say. Right. So, you know, I make it, by the time folks get to the end of my book, it's very, very clear that, you know, we are so far along already. And, and you know, just a couple of things to remind people of that, that 93% of all the heat that we've generated in the atmosphere has been absorbed into the oceans. You're not going to get that yes. heat out of the oceans no matter what you do, full stop. Uh, the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere for, for things like regenerative agriculture and soil rehab and all of these things to make a difference, they we don't have time. Um, that's it, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like the most cynical person on the planet, but but hear me out because I am gonna I am yes. gonna go somewhere with this. It's not gonna okay. make you want to slit your wrist. So, okay. uh, but but we have to have a sober analysis of where we are and how far along we are. You don't get the heat out of the oceans. You're not gonna stop the melting that's already at play. So many of these feedback loops that are already kicked in, you're not going to turn those around. And the the while these ideas in a book like Drawdown are fantastic, what would have to happen politically on a global level for these to happen and be enacted on the scale and the speed that they have to be brought in to really make serious changes as far as at least mitigation uh, is is completely unrealistic, uh, you know, given that most of the countries uh, on this planet uh, do not have uh, democratic leaders. And then even in the West, at least a third of the Western countries, including our own, 
are are either leaning into or already led by authoritarian rulers. So mm-hmm. the odds of a global revolution in governments on the you know with the speed that it would have to happen to start implementing these things on a scale that would actually make a difference, it, it's just not going to happen. So, um, but then that leads me back to what we spoke of earlier, moral obligation, that no matter how grim things look, we haven't been here as a species. And, and does this mean that all is lost? Does this mean that humans are going to go extinct? Uh, it looks that way, but nobody can say for sure. And I know that there's a lot of people out there making hard predictions or at least saying, yeah, for sure, humans are not going to make it out of this. And I'll, I'll be the first to say, yeah, it looks like humans aren't going to make it out of this. When you look at all the science and everything that's happened, the implications on our food and water availability, the insect collapse, et cetera, et cetera. But, but writer and statesman Vaclav Havel, who I quote in the book, said, hope is mm-hmm. not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing, no matter how it turns out. And that's, that comes back to this sense of moral obligation, that yes. despite how bleak things look, are we not morally obliged to the planet and to all the young people, so many of them literally walking out of school, having strikes, confronting politicians, doing what we should all be doing on a daily basis? Are we not morally obliged to these younger generations to not do absolutely everything in our power to try to stem the tide, to try to help, to try to mitigate, to, to work towards adaptation, to try to change no matter what? And I would say that holds true even if it's 40 years from now and there's no more Arctic sea ice at all and huge areas of Greenland and the Antarctic are already gone and the west the, the whole western Antarctic ice sheet has for the most part collapsed even if all that's happened are we still not morally obliged to do everything in our power and in our hearts to try to take care of what's left and to try to serve future generations wow very powerful yes the answer is Truly, unquestionably, and yes. And it's a searing, searing analysis, no question. Um, I can't say I'm used to searing analyses uh, wherein I feel comfortable. That doesn't exist. I've had Dr. Guy McPherson on, uh, University of Arizona Professor Emeritus, who uh, reads a storyline not unlike what you just delivered here. Uh, He speaks about near-term extinction, an NTE, not a near-death experience, but a near-term extinction. Uh, Bruce Lipton, cellular biologist, has been on a number of times, and one of the subjects we've discussed at length is the sixth extinction. Uh, So I'm not a stranger to this extreme uh, point of view at all. Um, It's harrowing. There's no question about it. There's harrowing. And your quote of of Havel is so on point. It really lifts us up. It reminds me a bit, Dar, of of Paul Hawkins' uh, feel really wise words of that is global warming happening to us or is it happening for us. 
that puts us into a position of true deep reflection as well then of action, which at the end of your book, uh, with your speaking with and consulting the elders um, and your recognition of, for instance, I believe her name is uh, Karina down in the Amazon, who is basically dedicating her whole life to the protection of, of the rainforest and other actions like this. Uh, you know, you're signaling to your audience, to your readership, that one must do what they must do in these in these uh, called last hours before uh, it goes any further. So, do you want to make any further comments about that? Well, that's right, and and it's it really does come down to you know how. How do we want to live our lives, and what are we going to devote ourselves to? That you know, even with the sober perspective of how far along we already are, we because to me we have to have that. We have to live in reality, um, yes. no matter how hard that is and how hard that is to take in, and what that means to the children on the planet today. But once we do that, which of course then necessitates the grieving and everything that's going to come along with that. But then once we do that, we're that our feet are firmly on the ground and we are so much better positioned to make deeper, wiser decisions and to keep our eyes on the ball as to what is really most important in my life. And I think it really works to kind of enable us to cut out all the BS and just get down to what is really, really important right now. And, and that's the kind of earnestness and mindset that I think we all need going into this era of loss that we're in. We're going to need it. We're going to need to dig deep. And we're going to really need each other in this. And so I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a thought that I'd just like to leave people with as we come to the end here is, uh, of this interview, that, that, you know, there's never been a more important time to really keep your loved ones close and figure out who is my community and where are they and, and how good am I working with these, how well am I working with these people and how can I deepen that because I think that's what we're going to really uh, come to rely upon now as we go forward. Wise words, wise, heartfelt words, Dar Jamal. I, I so appreciate it and the work you've been doing for a long, long time. And uh, just thank you for what you've done and who you are. Well, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be on your show, and I'm appreciative that you have it and for your work as well. So thank you again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to give a website of any sort so people can be uh, in touch or get your newsletter or what have you? Uh, sure thing. I've got, I maintain a website uh, that I, where I archive all of my writing, and it's my name, darjamail.net, so it's D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L.net. And the book is published by the New Press, and it's available pretty much everywhere. And uh, I write a, a, a two stories a month for truthout.org. One of them is a monthly climate dispatch, which is pretty intense uh, collation of uh, what's happened across the planet in the last 30 days. And then the other thing I'm doing is actually, uh, I think, sounds quite in alignment with your show, is me and a friend, mm-hmm. a co-author, a series now called How Then Shall We Live? And so kind of given this mm. context of all the intensity of these times, it's really an exploration of things like grief, uh, what is activism now, 
Um, how do you talk to children about what's happening? So it's really almost mm-hmm. more of a philosophical exploration that so, thus far people are, are responding well to it and finding it quite helpful. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. In fact, when you were speaking your last comments, I was thinking about uh, the work of Carolyn Baker and to some extent to Andrew Harvey as well, uh, who introduced me to Carolyn some years ago, who's also a psychologist uh, who's been writing about collapse psychology, as you know, and which basically means collapse ecology, um, sort of one and the same at this point. And in the sense, in the same way, mentally preparing people for reality, to really tune in and go through the grieving process, just like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did with people before this, just with, you know, death, and help people adjust to the reality of collapsing ecosystem, collapsing institutions, collapsing food supply, and not in the direction of, you know, the so-called militant, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, folks that go into bunkers, but rather, to the contrary, actually come together supportively in community and be of assistance to each other in an open, uh, heartfelt way, you know. And I, I hear that you're saying something of that ilk. Is that right? That's exactly right, yes. And I'm, I'm friends with Carolyn and have great respect for her work and Mr. Harvey. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it's it's there's a lot of people out there really promoting this thinking that, you know, it's kind of the yeah. anti-bunker mentality. Not well, Let's not go into survivalism defensive mode. Let's see what we can do to flourish with each other and live closer to the earth and really live the right way. It's the way we should have been living all along. So it is really a great opportunity for all of us to start heading in that direction. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, you can add me to the list because I've been talking about this for (laughs) not a years, but decades. I I wrote some blogs called dancing on the edge, you know, fire out with a squirt gun, you know, and taking that perspective, basically, that, you know, we're in, you know, in some ways in the twilight, and and it gives us the chance. It's an existential moment of facing death. I think that's the metaphor, really, at the end of it all. We're facing death, and who do we want to be, and what do we, do we want to do, and what do we want to stand for, ultimately, but it's staring at us in a way that it's never done before, and uh, we, it's time to be ourselves most deeply. So, Well, thank you Perfectly so much again, Dar Jamal. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye now. Sounds good. Dar Jamal, author of The End of Ice, beautiful, beautiful book. I've got to tell you, I, I read and read, and it's... Uh, even though it is heartbreaking to hear his experience from mountain to mountain and glacier to glacier and speaking with experts along the way, as well as people who have just lived in the areas uh, who are living the reality of the melt and the change. Um, There's something also heartening about it because it's true, it's real, it's 
uncluttered and it's not making any effort at all at a cover-up even in the way that I do which I enjoy doing which is the use of humor to lighten the story and um, kind of comfort the narrative but you know at a certain point even that hey you know what got to let that go too I'm going to come back to it, believe me, because I don't mind going out laughing. I think that's a fine thing to do, but not without recognizing fully uh, what I feel is my own human, uh, my own human and manly obligation to do everything I can to alleviate the situation and how do I put it, create a better world for us all, even as we dance along the edge. So on that note, I want to just thank you all for listening and for participating through your listening. If you would pass this on to your friends, your family, uh, others, so they can hear uh, this kind of very sober dialogue about what it is we are facing and let that then motivate action. As Dar said, we are so far down the line. It's true. We know it. We knew it. And we're there. And we still have life force. We still have hope, as he beautifully quoted. And we have the energy to do. And we will do until our last dying day. That's what I think. And that's what I think is appropriate. So remind, I'm just reminding you all that we are a 501c3. We're a nonprofit. Your donations to our organization are tax deductible, and they help us stay on the air and do what we do here at A Better World. So please take us into consideration to whatever extent you can. So appreciated. And also consider visiting our website and getting on our mailing list if you're not in on, on already and looking at our series of health and wellness products, organic uh, protein drinks, and also my counseling and coaching services, as well as energy balancing services. I truly believe I would also say that there is the power of intent and the power of the quantum field to move life in rather remarkable and maybe even what we would call miraculous ways. I do truly believe it, and I have also witnessed some of the reality of it. So in the midst of the sadness, in the midst of the grief, I also believe that we have a power that is far beyond what we have imagined. We know about it for eons, it comes to the power of prayer, the power of intention, healing powers that shamans of old have always known about, and it literally shapeshifts reality. Am I clinging to that alone? No way. But is it part of my awareness and education and consciousness? Yes way. So with that said, I want to hearten all of us to be aware fully, as Dar Jamal was bringing us up to speed with, 
and know that there's a lot of possibility and the power of our hearts, minds, and souls aligned individually and then collectively has the butterfly effect that we know about from quantum physics and there is much, much, much that can happen and I believe will. So again, thanks so much for joining. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.